listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, dear friends, you can take out your Bibles. We're continuing on in our sermon series in the book of 2 Timothy. So if you need to pause the video, pause it right here. Go grab your Bible and open it up. Our sermon text is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. So let's listen to God's word, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your words. So we can start with this. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us dizzy. It's a message that disorients us. According to the gospel, what we once thought good is actually evil, and what we once thought contemptible is actually glorious and full of beauty. The word of the gospel is the word that turns the world upside down. And this is nowhere more apparent than in the cross of Jesus. Above all things in this world, the cross is contemptible. It is a vile and disgusting device. And let no sentimentality fool you on this point. It was not simply a tool for for execution. There were certainly much easier, more expedient ways of killing a man in the ancient world. Rather, it was a device intended to maximize both the pain and the shame of the condemned. It was always done before the public eye. Crucifixion was not a matter of simple retribution like we find in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Rather, its purpose was to elicit the response of the crowds so that they would not only think with their mind, but that they would say with their mouths, this man hanging upon this cross, he is cursed and he is cursed above all men. And as we think about the cross, it was a total defeat. The crucified had nothing left to stand upon, nothing to boast about. The cross robbed the condemned of his, of his strength, of his valor, of his honor, of his good name. And finally, when all of these things were stripped away from him, he was finally robbed of his very life. He would stop breathing and his heart would stop beating. But the gospel of Jesus Christ makes us dizzy. What we once thought good is actually evil, and what we once thought contemptible is actually glorious and full of beauty. And the gospel provides the authoritative interpretation of what happened outside the walls of Jerusalem when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a wooden cross by Roman soldiers. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. He gives us the interpretation. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, and that's the key phrase, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, no, 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 you cannot judge, you cannot look at the, at the cross through worldly standards. Instead, he presses upon us. Do you want to see the omnipotence of God? Do you want to see the, the mighty right arm of God revealed? Do you want to see the strength of the Almighty God? Then you need to look to the cross. For when you look at the cross, Christ crucified, you will see the power of God. And Paul continues to press on us. He asks, do you want to see the, the fruit of God's omniscience and foreknowledge? Do you want to see what the divine mind can produce? Then you must look to the cross. You must look to Christ crucified. For when you look at Christ crucified, you will actually see the wisdom of God. And when we start to understand this gospel rightly according to the scriptures, it begins to change all of life. It casts a long shadow over everything. Nothing can stay the same. The gospel changes our boast, what makes us proud, what we beat our chests about. We cast aside worldly strength and we start to talk like the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And it, and it changes what makes us satisfied, what makes us happy, what makes us content. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, the next verse. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And it changes the very aim of our life. What are we, what are we, where are we going? Who do we want to, to be? Jesus teaches us, Mark chapter 10. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so we can say truly, the gospel teaches us that what we once thought evil is actually good, and what we once thought contemptible is actually glorious and full of beauty. We can say that again. The gospel teaches us that what we once thought good is actually evil, and what we once thought contemptible is actually glorious and full of beauty. But right from the get-go, we have to state the, the obvious. This is a difficult path to walk. It's hard to walk out of rhythm with the rest of the world. Everything screams at us to start walking in time with everyone else. No one wants to be the one guy in the marching band who is out of time, out of rhythm, out of step with everyone else. To glory in a crucified Messiah, even more to conform our lives to a crucified Messiah, is a daunting challenge. And it's for this reason that Paul takes up his pen and begins to write to Timothy and also to us. Timothy needs help and so do we so that we might live in conformity to the crucified Messiah. And Paul has been faithfully plugging away at this theme throughout the book of 2 Timothy. Paul begins this book in verse 6 with his earnest call. Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. And then in the next verse, verse 7, Paul makes clear that Timothy has not received a spirit of fear. He's not received a spirit of cowardice. Rather, he has received the very spirit of God, accompanied with the Spirit's gifts, power, love, and, and self-control. And then, then Paul further sharpens his argument of what he wants to see in Timothy in verse 8. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And this brings us to our passage, verses 15 through 18. And what Paul does in these four verses is he puts feet on all of these commands that we've been carefully studying the last two sermons. And our text is as simple as it gets. Essentially, Paul looks at his spiritual son, Timothy, and does what any good dad would do. He says this to Timothy. Son, don't be like Philegius, Figulus, and Hermogenes. They, they ripped out my heart. They disappointed me greatly. They brought shame upon Jesus and me. They really don't get the gospel. Don't be like them. Instead, be like Anesiphorus. Copy him. Follow him. That's what it looks like to be faithful in this life. That's the path of honor. That's the path of glory. That guy really gets the gospel. In essence, Paul is preaching to Timothy and to us, don't do that, do this. And at this point, we just need to stop and praise God for his wisdom. In the scriptures, we receive all sorts of instruction. We find whole chapters and books devoted to logic and argumentation. And we need this because our minds need to be renewed by the truth of the gospel. The way we think and reason needs to be conformed to the the message of Jesus Christ crucified. And then we find whole sections of the Bible given over to story. Large swaths, whole chunks of the Bible. And we desperately need this too because we need to know how God has acted throughout history. We need to know the history of God from Genesis and throughout redemptive history. And then we find big chunks of the Bible given over to poetry and music. And we need this too. Because the truth of God doesn't only come for our heads, our intellectual reasoning, but for our hearts. That we might react and worship God appropriately. And then we find passages like the one in front of us. Simple, straightforward, fatherly wisdom. Paul looks at his son. He looks at us and says, don't do that. Do this. Now, there's a temptation for some of us when we come to practical fatherly wisdom like we find in our text. There's a voice in some of us that starts speaking to us. Well, I I want something more meaty. I want something with more doctrine. I want something with more gospel. I want the deeper things. I don't want these four verses. They're too simple. They're too straightforward. Don't do that. Do this. But we have to cast aside this this attitude. We have to cast this attitude aside because it's foolish. It's foolish. It defies the wisdom of God. We need all of God's word if we're going to be fully formed Christians. We need a well-balanced diet. Whatever God puts on our plate, we need to eat it because God is wiser than we are. And so we need God's stories, we need God's logic, we need God's songs and poems, and we need God's fatherly, practical, simple wisdom. We need, don't do that, do this. We need what Paul has given us in these four verses. So don't do that, do this. And there's a second temptation that comes with this. We have to be careful because with this practical knowledge... We have this temptation to sit back comfortably in our chairs. And we have to understand that God's wisdom always packs a punch. And before we look at these two examples that Paul sets before us, the don't do that and the do this, we have to grapple with the question, why? Why do we need to take this fatherly, practical, straightforward wisdom to heart? Why do we need to take it seriously? Why do we need to grapple with it? 
Well, we find an answer in verse 18. Paul prays for Nesiphorus with these words. He says, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Paul's making something clear to us. The wisdom that he's going to give Timothy and ultimately to us is not the the life works best kind of wisdom. It's not the, the wisdom where you'll just avoid some trouble in your life if you take these words to heart. Paul has something more important in mind. His focus, we see, is on the day of all days. The ESV capitalizes the word day, capital D alerting us to the fact that this is no normal day. In the mind of Paul, this is the day when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. And so we can just put our theological hats on and think about this day. Well, what's going to happen when the day of Jesus arrives, when he comes in the fullness of his glory? Well, it's going to be a day of resurrection. Dead are going to rise up. It's going to be a day of celebration. The bride is going to meet her all-conquering groom. There's going to be cheers and joy like we've never seen before. But Paul has his mind on one particular aspect of this day, and that particular aspect is judgment. When the Lord Jesus returns, both the living and the dead will enter into judgment. Both Christians and non-Christians will be judged. As we consider Paul, especially in the book of 2 Timothy, He has his vision focused on this coming day. This theme appears and reappears in 2 Timothy multiple times. And so as we look ahead in the book of 2 Timothy, we we find that this day, this, this judgment, serves as a source of motivation for ministry. And so Paul, when he writes to Timothy, he says, consider this day, consider that you will be judged. Timothy, when you preach to God's people as they're gathered before you, understand you're doing this under the watchful eye of your judge. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Not only does this day serve as motivation, but it also serves as a, as a consolation. Paul is weary and worn. He has lived a long life. And during this long life of ministry, he's been mistreated and maligned. But Paul understands that when this day comes, the record is going to be set straight. He's going to be justified in front of all of his opponents. Listen to what Paul says about this day. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul longs for this day because the record is going to be set straight once and for all. And this is not only true for Paul, but it's true for all genuine Christians. Paul continues to write in verse 8 saying this, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's consolation for all Christians on this coming day. What Paul is doing in verse 18 and throughout the letter of 2 Timothy is grounding Timothy and he's grounding us in this day of judgment. And the point of application is so plain. How we live the Christian life really does matter. Obedience to God and his gospel and his commands are not optional extras. Our deeds, our conduct, our obedience will either demonstrate we are truly Jesus' disciples or that we're just hypocrites who are Christians in name only. Or to put it another way, a tree is known by its fruit. 
A bad tree produces what? Bad fruit. And a good tree produces what? Good fruit. And on the day of judgment, Jesus is going to come inspecting the fruit. Paul spells this out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is helpful for us. We cannot just sit back comfortably in our chairs and listen to this fatherly wisdom. We need to listen with a real earnestness because what Paul lays before us really matters. If we follow what Paul says, it's going to lead us on the path of life. But if we disregard it, if we turn aside from it, we're going to travel down on the path to destruction. There's a real choice to be made. And so let's work away at Paul's words. Paul writes, don't do that. So he starts with this negative example of infidelity. Verse 15, Paul says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figilus and Hermogenes. So we can't know for certain, but it's very likely that Timothy was residing in the city of Ephesus when he received this letter from Paul. Now I'm assuming here, I'm assuming that our, our collective understanding of ancient geography is not very good. And so Ephesus was the leading city of the Roman province Asia. And so when we look in our text and we hear Paul saying Asia, don't think China, think modern Turkey, that area. And Ephesus was the leading city, the capital city of that province Asia. And so if you remember back to the book of Acts, Paul set up shop in Asia for about three years and he carried on ministry there, lecturing every day to both Jews and Greeks about the gospel. And Paul saw significant fruit as he ministered there in Ephesus, so much so that Acts chapter 19 verse 10 says this about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Amazing. Amazing. From this ministry, Paul setting up shop in Asia, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so powerful was, was Paul's ministry among the Ephesians that when he, when he left them, the leaders of the church broke down in tears, weeping. And so with this information in front of us about Paul's words, the words in verse 15 jump off the page. Paul writes in our text, All who are in Asia turned away from me. Did you hear that? All who are in Asia turned away from me. We, 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 we see that there's real pain, real disappointment here. Even perhaps we could say real depression within the apostle. This is the place where Paul preached for years. These were the believers that Paul nourished with the word of God and loved. But now what? These people have turned their back upon him. And so the great question is, why? Why is there this rift between the apostle and his people? Why does Paul point out to his figulas and hermogenes? Why do they make this move against Paul? What is going on here? Well, the answer, I believe, is a rather simple one. Paul was no longer attractive in their eyes. He became an object of contempt. And this is a theme happening throughout Paul's ministry. You find it happening in his letter to the, letters to the Corinthians or even in his letter to the, to the Philippians. He became an object of contempt. And now this, this, this temptation isn't foreign to us. Why? Well, we're naturally attracted to the resume 
that, that, that oozes strength and, and competency. We're attracted to the guy who has it all together. But the more these folks in Asia gazed upon Paul, the more they heard about Paul's situation, the more embarrassed they got about Paul. Paul's resume didn't ooze with strength and, and competency that they desired. It didn't look like Paul had it all together. Instead, we find a sampling of the things that would have been in Paul's resume. Paul writes this about his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What was going on? With all of this before their eyes, the church in Asia began to say, where is the glory? Where is the honor? Where is the beauty? Where is the power? Where is the wisdom? We don't see it in Paul's ministry. And so we're going to distance ourselves from him. We're going to pull back from him. And so we see that there is a real tragedy in our text. Before us, we find a a fractured and broken relationship between Paul and these people he loved in Asia. These people that Paul loved had, had turned their back upon him. But we have to understand something. The tragedy goes deeper than just this. It's not just a broken relationship. When the people recoiled from Paul, they were not only recoiling from Paul, But ultimately, they were recoiling from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the great cancer at work in these people is that they were operating according to worldly values. All that they could see in Paul's ministry was shame and failure. They couldn't smell the pleasing aroma of Christ in him. They couldn't see the beauty of Christ shining through him and all that he was in. They didn't have a real sense of Christ's strength and power displayed in Paul's situation. The real tragedy is that these these people have become blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was happening in their hearts? This cross was becoming a stumbling block. It was becoming an object of, of folly. They couldn't see the glory. They couldn't see the wisdom. They couldn't see the power. And so they're recoiling from Paul. And what does Paul say to Timothy? Don't do that. Don't walk in that path because that will lead you into great trouble. And so we have the negative example in front of us. Don't do that. And so Paul turns his attention in verses 16 and 18 and he says to Timothy, do this. Paul writes, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Paul is making 
a contrast here, and the contrast is stark. Here's Onesiphorus, and here's the church in Asia. The church in Asia, they pulled back from Paul, but, but Paul presses in. They abandoned Paul, but, but Onesiphorus, he, he searches for Paul. They neglected Paul, but here's this man, and he, he meets Paul's needs. He refreshes Paul. Paul is destitute in prison. Prison in the ancient world is not like it is today. He was not afforded meals or clothing or care. And so here comes Anesiphorus and he supplies Paul with money, food, drink, clothing, friendship, so that Paul would be taken care of in this city. And again, we need to ask, why? Why did Anesiphorus expose himself to such risk? Think about this. Here's Paul. He's in prison in Rome. The authorities are not fond of Paul. And here comes Anesiphorus aiding Paul. What are these authorities going to start thinking about Anesiphorus? Is this man too going to be chained and and shackled for for the gospel of Christ? That had to be going on in all of these people's minds. Why would Anesiphorus travel all the way to Rome, leaving behind his family? There's a cost there. Why would Onesiphorus go to Paul, search for him, find him, and meet his needs, spending his own money, using his own resources to care for Paul? Why would Onesiphorus do this? The answer is found in verse 16. Paul says this. He knows this man, and he can speak to his heart. He says, he was not ashamed of my chains. He was not ashamed of my chains. Now, if we have our our thinking caps on right now, we've heard this phrase already used twice in the first chapter of this book. Remembering back to verse 8, Paul commands Timothy with these words, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. Do not be ashamed, Timothy. And then Paul, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1, describes his own ministry. This is his own attitude. Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But what? But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed. Timothy's called not to be ashamed. Paul's not ashamed. Do you see what's going on here? Onesiphorus's vision wasn't clouded by worldly standards. He could see what was truly glorious. He could see what was truly valuable and good and beautiful and powerful and wise. And when he looked at Paul's ministry, when he heard all the reports about what was happening to Paul, his suffering and trouble, he didn't look at Paul and see him as an object of contempt or an object of shame or a source of trouble. Rather, he looked at Paul and he could see the glory of Jesus Christ shining through him. He could see the glory of Jesus. And that's why he wasn't ashamed. And so we can ask, well, what does this ultimately reveal about this man, Anesiphorus? It reveals that this man... That not only loved Paul, but he really loved Jesus. That he actually treasured the crucified Messiah. It reveals that he actually got the gospel of Jesus. And his mind and his affections were rewired by this gospel. And he could see what was truly good. He could see what was truly beautiful. And brothers and sisters, we need to take this example to heart. Know this, God sees and rewards his people's faithfulness, no matter how small or insignificant it seems. 
Not all of us are called to stand up like Peter or Stephen in the book of Acts and preach to great crowds or, or stand in front of angry enemies. Not all of us are called to be like the Apostle Paul, traveling all over the world. Some are called better, yet most of us are called to simply be faithful in the small and ordinary things. And the truth is that God delights in the faithfulness in the small things. Anesiphorus could see the glory of Christ in Paul, and he did the small things. He went and fed and clothed and gave money to Paul so that Paul could live and be refreshed. So just look at our text. Who is praised here? Who is set before us? Whose name is inscribed in Holy Scripture? A man by the name of Anesiphorus who went and gave Paul something to eat and drink. So this faithfulness can be so practical in our lives. So Paul preaches to us a very simple message. Don't do that. Do this. And what is Paul doing with these examples? Don't do that, do this. He's, he's placing a challenge in front of Timothy. He's essentially saying, Timothy, will you follow in the footsteps of the church of Asia who, who pulled back from me? Or are you going to follow in the faithful, practical footsteps of Anesiphorus who, who pressed in, who searched for me, who found me, who refreshed me, who was not ashamed of my chains? What path will you take? And this is the challenge that this text places in front of us, each one of us. What path will you take? Will your life be marked by small, faithful steps of obedience to Jesus? Will you look like an Esiphorus in your life? Or will you turn back and walk in step, walk in time, walk in rhythm with the world? But I don't want to end this sermon with these words because we would be greatly mistaken if this whole matter of obedience was simply a fight for willpower, or simply a call to bravery. No, ultimately, and we have to understand this, ultimately, this is a battle to see, a fight to see. We need to see what is actually glorious, beautiful, and good. Figulus and Hermogenes and the church in Asia turned back because they could not see the power and the wisdom of God, but Anesiphorus ran ahead because he could see it, because that is all that he could see in Paul's ministry. And so the ultimate call for us is this. We must return again to the gospel of Jesus Christ and plead with our Father that he would once again show us the glory. That he would reveal to us the might of his mighty right arm. That he would reveal to us his wisdom and his strength in the crucifixion of his Son. And when we see that, when we see the glory in Christ crucified, we will be able to walk in faithfulness, actually being able to treasure what should be treasured. And turning away from that which should actually be turned away from. We need to go to the Father and wrestle with Paul's words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 22 through 25. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's what we need. Anesiphorus could run because he could see. And if we're going to run in faithfulness, walk in faithfulness, we need to see what is truly valuable as well. And let's pray towards that end. Oh, Father, we do now confess our sin. We often do not see what is truly valuable and good and glorious. And we ask that you forgive us our sins and that you would give us eyes to see. Would you show us your strength, your power, your glory in Christ crucified? And with this sight, would you lead us in the path of faithfulness that we might look like 
And that's before us. Walking in faithfulness, even in the small things. Treasuring Christ. Oh, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' good and precious name.